George Casey retired as a four-star general after having served as Chief of Staff of the United States Army and Commanding General of the Multinational Force in Iraq. Today, he will discuss the state of civil-military relationships and the stress they are currently under in America. Let's listen in. Well, let me go ahead and get started. For those of us who are on the line, we do want to finish at, at five o'clock, but it's my great honor and pleasure to uh, introduce uh, a great Army officer, George Casey, who's been a friend for about 25 years or so. And just, you have, you all have his biography, so I won't go over that, but I, I want to emphasize that George Casey is one of the few officers who had four-star jobs, both on the operational side of the armed forces, that is out in the field in Iraq, uh, shooting and breaking and making things happen out there. And then he also had experience as a four-star as a chief of the army in which your job is to organize, train and equip the forces that are right there with you today, but also to think long-term about what the army will be like in the future, what kind of equipment it needs to buy, what kind of uh, long-term training it needs to do. So you're, you have the pleasure this afternoon of talking to a really un uniquely experienced and wise individual across the full range of military experience. And of course, since he retired, like all of us in all of us in, who wore the uniform, we're now back in civilian society. We have a chance to observe uh, what it's like uh, out here. And uh, he's been thinking deeply about, about uh, civil military relations, which are, it's no secret, they're under stress in this country uh, right now. And I can't think of a more person, perfect person to talk to us about it. But when we open it up to questions, I'd also like to emphasize that uh, I, I told uh, General Casey that really uh, any anything about his background or about current issues is uh, is important he's he cares a lot about what happens to Iraq he's been watching it been watching the army and the armed forces in general so I look forward to a really rich question and answer period but George uh, if you'd like to start us off with your thoughts on uh, the state of the state of uh, civil military relations right now in the country over to you great. Great. Well, thank you very much, Denny. And uh, thank you all. It's great to be with you. And thank you all for investing in this and what you're doing. As I said uh, to Nancy earlier, uh, if the country's going to move forward, we're going to have to do it together. And, and it's going to have to be people working together and compromising to take into advantage, into, into consideration everyone's interests. Um, so, Denny said, I'm going to talk about civil military relations. And uh, I see Doug Scribner there. And uh, I, I've been teaching a course on this at the uh, University of Denver Corbell School for uh, uh, since 2012. And I think I also saw Nordy Schwartz bumping around there and Nordy, former chief of staff of the Air Force and, and one of my great colleagues. So it's nice to see you, Nordy. So when, when Liz called me and asked me to do this, originally we agreed that I would talk on leadership. And that's, that, that's a subject I teach at Cornell and UVA business schools. And a few days after that, I got a, an email from a reporter here in Boston asking me to send him the slides from a class I taught at Boston College Law School last year on civil military relations. And he said he was doing a story on the clamor at the time for John Kelly, General John Kelly, the former uh, White House Chief of Staff and Director of Homeland Security. People wanted him to speak out about the president's alleged comments uh, in that Atlantic, Atlantic uh, article uh, that the president made to him at the grave of his son. And Kelly, uh, John, John has been re very reluctant to do that. 
uh, he did his work and he published the column fittingly on September 11th. And, and in that column, he commented how essential it is for a functioning democracy to have a clear line of demarcation between military command and civilian control. And to those encouraging John Kelly to speak out, he said, watching them, wanting them to become talking heads on cable news ignores the military culture that produced them. And I agree heartily with both of those statements. Now, it wasn't just that, but it's also been a very interesting summer from a civil military perspective. And I think these days there's an awful lot of interest uh, and frankly misunderstanding about the role that the military might play in the transition of power uh, between presidents uh, or in dealing with the internal violence that may come as a result of that. I mean, just think about what's what's gone on here really just since the end of May. Now uh, there's been talk of imposing the uh, Insurrection Act, which was signed in 1807 by Thomas Jefferson. Uh, and historians think that it was it was part, partly done to, de to deny Aaron Burr the ability to uh, put together a coup uh, against the United States government. It's a, it's a provision that allows the president to deploy federal forces and federalized National Guard forces within the United States uh, to deal with civil disorder. It's something that has been used sparingly uh, within the United States. And in, in my lifetime, it's been used by President Eisenhower and President Kennedy during the civil rights movement. Uh, and it was last used by President George H.W. Bush uh, in the aftermath of the riots in Los Angeles after the Rodney King arrest in 1992. Um, so so that, that got things started. And, and from that, you, you move to the Lafayette Park incident on the 1st of June to about 10 days later, the chairman of the Joint Chief publicly expressing regret for creating the perception of military involvement in domestic politics and, and calling it a mistake to be learned from. And then in August, there was an open letter written by two retired Lieutenant Colonels informing Chairman Milley that in a few months, he may have to choose between defying a lawless president or betraying our constitution. They went on, they went on to say that they wrote this because they wanted him to help, wanted to help him think clearly uh, about his choices. And I'm sure the chairman appreciated uh, that help very much. Uh, and then lastly, probably more recently, recent comments about the president repeatedly refusing to commit to a peaceful transition of power. So, so I suspect it's only gonna get more interesting between now and the 20th of January. So, so I'd like to take you back to the events that, that really have shaped civil military relations in our country and have led to the military accepting civilian control for the 230 plus years of our existence. And that I believe will govern the actions of the military in the coming months. So come back with me if you will, the 25th of May, 1787, Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, where George Washington brings in 55 men to draft a constitution for our 11-year-old experiment in democracy. Uh, it's a task they completed in less than three months, in 114 days, but it was not done without rancor. And over the course of the debates, 13 delegates left 
and three of the remaining refused to sign the Constitution. In the end, 39 of the 55 delegates signed what they called a series of carefully crafted compromises. And when George Washington was asked for his personal thoughts, he said, I'm not a blind admirer, but it was the best that could be obtained at the time. These compromises, if you will, have more than stood the test of time and have been used as a model by countries all over the world. So our constitution for me is a great reminder of what's possible in this country when people work together. So, so back to the civil military side of this. In, in May, 1787, that was six years after the defeat of the British at Yorktown, the new country found itself in a very precarious security situation. I mean, think about it. We've just defeated the greatest uh, 18th century power and we were the only democracy on the block. There was nothing else like us out there. The British still had forts on US soil and would for eight more years. The Spanish controlled the mouth of the Mississippi and both were working with the Indian. Add to that, we're, we're wrestling with the demands of becoming a maritime nation. I mean, with a 1500 mile coast at that time from uh, Maine, which was part of uh, Massachusetts, all the way down to Georgia, uh, it was something that it was geographically uh, given to us and we had to deal with it. If that wasn't enough, uh, the art they had found that the Articles of Confederation that they had agreed to in 1781 had largely left the issues of sovereignty to the states. So the federal government had no power to tax, had no power to draft, had no power to mobilize the, the militias. Uh, and, and basically the federal government had no power to defend the country. And it was heavy on the delegates' minds at that time that this weakness could warrant mischief uh, from our European friends who, many felt we're not done with us yet. And if that still was enough, it wasn't enough. The greatest threat they felt was, was from internal disunion. And they say the Daniel Shays rebellion, which is where I, Daniel Shays, a farmer in Massachusetts, mobilized another group of farmer against excessive taxes from uh, what he perceived as the coastal government uh, in Massachusetts. And to, to put down the rebellion, which took, which was only put down about four months before the convention convened, the governor of Massachusetts had to go out to local merchants, basically pass the hat to get the money uh, to raise a militia to put down the rebellion. Uh, that's no way to ensure the security uh, of anything. And so I've, as I've studied and read about the development of the constitution, I, I'm, I have really be, been amazed at how much of it is about enabling the federal government to defend itself and protect the country while ensuring that the standing peacetime military establishment that would result from that would not threaten the very democracy that it was set up to protect. And, and that tension goes through everything that goes on in the, in the constitution. There was such an aversion to what they call the army of the king. The, the British Occupation Army they, they had lived with for so long, that they put in checks and balances. And these checks and balances that we all know from our Civics 101 class, um, they are largely driven by the desire of the framers not to have one person in complete control of the military. 
So no one, no one person or one branch of the government had complete control over the peacetime military establishment. I, I don't want to turn this into a civics lesson, but Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution uh, gave, gave Congress, among other things, the powers to tax and to raise and support armies and to provide and maintain navies. Now, just a little inside baseball, but the, the Navy always says to the Army, see, it says provide and maintain for us. So we're permanent. It says raise and support you, which means we only call you when we need you. So we should get more money than you. I, I had to say that, Denny, I'm sorry. Um, but that's the that that that's the reality. It went to the that part of it went to Congress. Article two, section two gave the president the power of the sword by making him the commander in chief of the armed forces and state militia when it was activated. That one phrase established the principle of civilian control of the military that we live with to this day. Uh, but as much else with the Constitution, the framers left the details. Uh, to be worked out by the executive and legislative branches. And, and so they have. And civil military relations, like the rest of our union, have been decidedly imperfect over the course of our history. But they have ensured the security of our country and our liberties for over 230 years. And I can tell you that they are firmly entrenched in the cultures of all of our armed forces. Now, let me just give you a couple of examples that I, I, I use in my class, because I, I, I use case studies to, to, to talk about civil military relations, military relations, to see how, how they've changed and how, what, what we've learned over the years. And, and I, I, I start off with um, the relief of Douglas MacArthur in April 1951 in Korea. And there was a terrible relationship between Truman and MacArthur. They had met once. MacArthur had been in the Pacific uh, for the entire war. Uh, Truman flew uh, just before the elections in 1950 to Wake Island to have a meeting with MacArthur. And MacArthur then told him he, probably, he, he was thinking about we could be home by Christmas. Their, their relationship was after that was, was very long distance and, and, and not personal at all. So there was no understanding among, uh, between the two of them. Uh, in March of, uh, of 1951, Truman sent, uh, sent MacArthur a letter telling him that he was getting ready to announce that he was ready to negotiate with the Chinese. For some unknown reason, four days later, MacArthur announced that he was ready to negotiate with the Chinese commander in the field, preempting the president. And, and within a day or so, a letter that he had sent to Representative Joe Martin, who was at that time the minority leader in the House, was read on the floor of the House. And in it, it expressed Marsh, MacArthur's view that Korea should be pressed to victory, which was completely counter to the president's view. And so Truman took the step of relieving uh, really an American icon uh, and a serving field leader. And, and I, Truman was a, was a gutsy guy. And, and, and here's, I wanna read to you what he said about the relief of, of MacArthur. I fired him because he wouldn't respect the authority of the president. I didn't fire him because he was the dumb son of a bitch, although he was, but that's not against the law for generals. If it was, half to three quarters would be in jail. Well, thank you very much, Harry, but we, we appreciate that. Um, we, we, 
we, we moved on from that. And frankly, um, we, we moved on to Vietnam. And, and I, I use H.R. McMaster's book, Their Election to Duty. Uh, and I use particularly the part that looks at the relationship between President Johnson and the Joint Chiefs in the spring and summer of April 65, 1965. And, and it's a period of four months where civilian leaders fail to articulate clear strategic goals. Uh, the, the military doesn't raise proper objections. And by the end of July, we are committed to send 125,000 plus troops to Vietnam and we're committed without a strategy. Uh, coming in uh, as the war was into the service, as the war was winding down, uh, the lessons of Vietnam were, were something that, that I were ingrained in me uh, and that resonated with me over the course of my career. So, so where are we today? What, what have we, the military, learned from all that? And I'd say we, we, we've learned a lot. Um, nothing's perfect in any, in any relationship because people are involved. But, but after all that, here's what we believe about civil-military relations today in our military. We, we believe that the armed forces exist to carry out the strategies and policies established by the president and Congress. We believe that purely political um, decisions are the purview of political leaders, but that we owe them our military advice on the military implications of that policy or strategy, if there are any. Third, we believe that military leaders have a duty, a, a duty to question policies they believe to be mistaken and to tell what I would call the unpleasant truths to civilian leaders. That, that we, we, we don't let them make a decision without them knowing that. We also believe that military leaders should be apolitical and not involve themselves in politics. And we believe that political or civil military discussions, particularly on the matters of strategy and policy, should be conducted in private. Those principles are taught at our war college, and as I said, in the culture of our services. And Chairman Milley last week reaffirmed them in congressional testimony. He said, I believe deeply in the principle of an apolitical military. In the event, he said, in the event of a dispute, of some aspect of the elections, U.S. law requires U.S. courts and U.S. Congress to resolve the disputes, not the U.S. military. He said, it concluded by saying, I foresee no role for the U.S. armed forces in this process. And I firmly believe that he will do his utmost to deliver on that. So, so I believe that these views in our apolitical culture will be tested in the coming months but, but I don't believe that they're at risk. They certainly will be challenged, but we take our oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And I am constant, I'm confident that the currently serving uh, military uh, will honor that oath. And with that, uh, I'll stop and I will open it up for questions uh, from, from anyone about, about any issue. Well, thanks very much, uh, General Casey. I, I, uh... I certainly agree with uh, exactly with you and with what General Milley said, and, and uh, we'll have some maybe some observations at the very end. But we do have some questions from uh, some of our listeners. First, uh, Jim Bernstein, uh, 
Are you on? Uh, I think you had a question. Yes, thank you. Um, General, thank you for your presentation today and thank you for your service. I have two questions and I was wondering if you could uh, address uh, one or both. The first one is with respect to civil military relations, do you believe that compulsory military service would um, help to address the uh, void in that area and perhaps even address some of the pressing social concerns that we're facing in our country right now? And the second question is about something that you mentioned during your talk, um, which was preparedness. And do you, are you, is the army, is the military in general worried about our ability to mount a prepared uh, military because of the deteriorating health of our citizenry. Okay, thanks, Jim. Um, the, the first one on the, uh, I don't believe that compulsory military service uh, is, is the answer to our problems. I believe that the all-volunteer force uh, that was implemented in 1973 uh, ha has done very well. I do believe that some type of compulsory service uh, across a, a range of areas in, in healthcare, education, uh, but but I, I I told my my sons you know you have a responsibility to give back to the country uh, that has given you so much, and, and one one of the things that that happens when you bring people together from all walks of life, as as happens in the military, is you realize you break down a lot of barriers. And I think the country's you've got some barriers it needs to break down. Uh, I, I've worked a little bit with Stan uh, McChrystal uh, with a group uh, that advocates uh, for uh, uh, making a one-year service year uh, sometime between at the time a, a, a student graduates from high school and the time they uh, graduate from college. Uh, they're recommending that that be part of American life. And I, and I would definitely support something like that. Um, am I worried about, the second question is, am I, am I worried about uh, military preparedness uh, as, as a result of the ongoing health crisis? Um, I can tell you the interactions I've had, uh, although they've been sporadic uh, with folks in the field is, and it probably won't surprise you, the, the military is getting on with training uh, they're getting on with uh, recruiting and uh, bringing new folks on board. Um, and we're good at things that take discipline. And so being able to enforce that discipline on folks, uh, we've been able to do that and maintain a, a good enough level, a good re level of readiness. Um, and so I'll leave it at that, but I, I'm not, I am not concerned uh, about the military's preparedness uh, to deal with another, another country's challenge, because remember, they have to deal with the same challenges too. Thanks, General Casey. Uh, Doug Scribner, are you there? I am, thank you, uh, Admiral and George. Good to see you, hope you're well. Uh, am, thanks. Actually, I, I was gonna ask Jim's question, so let me uh, do a different one. Uh, we, we hear stories frequently about our uh, military personnel and our veterans with mental health concerns, with suicide rates, with obviously uh, those coming out of the theaters of war with, with traumatic um, injuries, both brain injury and other physical injuries. Are we doing enough? What more can we do to help them deal with all the different kinds of issues that arise out of that, both 
as veterans and returning from theaters, but also are there better things we can do in training or in developing our men and women in uniform to, to deal with particularly the mental health issues and strains and stresses? Thanks, George. Yeah, okay, Doug. Um, I'll tell you, when I, when I came back from Iraq after almost three years there, uh, I, I saw, I had seen firsthand the impacts of combat on the troops, the leaders, and, and me. And so when I got back to be, to the Army Chief of Staff's job, uh, I asked the question of my staff, what are we doing to, uh, to identify post-traumatic stress and traumatic, and traumatic brain injury? What are we doing to treat it? And more importantly, what are we doing to prevent it? Well, what I found was that the military really hadn't dealt with post-traumatic stress uh, since the Vietnam War. And there were precious few people left that remembered what that was about. And so we started a program and, and I actually called, called in uh, some of the best civilian minds from around the country. And I said, help me, help me here. I, I feel morally obligated to ensure that we are preparing our soldiers mentally to deal with the challenges that in, in the environments that we're thrusting them into. And Dr. Marty Seligman uh, up, at, up at University of Pennsylvania helped us put together a program called Comprehensive Soldier Fitness that we implemented in the fall of 2009 uh, and that the Army is still doing. Uh, the, honestly, that we have seen some positive results. In, in fact, we, we see that we have everybody take a, a, a test. It's an assessment. We call it a global uh, assessment tool. And a soldier sits down at a, at a computer and about 20 minutes, they answer questions about the, uh, in, in the four key areas of, of fitness, uh, emotional, social, spiritual, and family. And they, get a, and they get a bar graph result. And if they have a long bar, they're in good shape in that area. If they have a short bar, they need help. And then we had uh, the people from around the country put together videos that help them deal with those different challenges. And then we had a program that we started at University of Pennsylvania where we sent sergeants up to be trained uh, to become master resilience trainers. And they went back to the force because I knew I wasn't gonna get soldiers uh, to willingly accept behavioral health uh, tips from a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but they take it from a sergeant. Anyway, that program is, is still going on in the army and, and I do believe it has some benefits. Uh, the second, the first part you asked was, "What about what? What are we doing enough?" And, and you know, the, I don't mean this to be snide, but I mean you, we can always do more. But I mean, as I look around here, where, where you can help is we need civil military partnerships uh, that can fill the void that the federal government will never be able to fill. You know, the federal government, the things that they do well are big things. They never are going to be able to deal with that individual soldier or family member or caregiver. And so it's all of these agencies and, 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 and support organizations that have sprung, sprung up all across the country. And I think it's wonderful. And they've really made a difference in the support that, that people are getting. Unfortunately, we only, we only hear the, the, the bad stories in the media. Thank you, George. Thanks very much. Uh, Maxine Clark. 
Yes, thank you. Thank you, uh, General Casey. This is a really interesting conversation. When the, when the writers of the uh, Constitution sat down, they had no idea, maybe, maybe somebody imagined it, about cybersecurity. And that is one of those questions that really worries me. How, if anybody had come in and blown up election offices or blown up, uh, burned down places where people had, had cast their ballots, we would be um, fighting back. But if they're doing it um, on cyber, well, we can't really see them, or but we can catch them. We know they're doing it. What do you suggest we do as um, if there is a military response or as a response as a country who cares about um, democ democratic values? Uh, from a cyber perspective? Yeah. Yeah, I, I suspect that the military is closely, deeply involved uh, uh, with, through uh, Northern Command with the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, and, and making all, any or all of their cyber capabilities av available to the department uh, to provide what assistance they can around the, around the country. It, it's not something I think the military should should or, or can or should take on um, by itself. Uh, they need to be asked for the for the support either by, uh, well, pr primarily by the Department of Homeland Security. Well, I was uh, think I was thinking that excuse me is that if if we would consider something an act of war if it was a physical thing like burning down of powers, yeah, uh, but that this is something that if it we, was physical, it would be. Yeah. So, so there's a, there's a great high level book about cyber war uh, by Richard Clark, who was the, who was the, the, the cyber guru for the Clinton administration. And I think he's, he spilled over in the Bush administration for a bit. And, and it talks about what constituted Cyber war, and honestly, we don't know what, what constitutes an act of constitutes an act of war in cyber. And we we don't know. I think you know we'll know it when we see it, but nobody knows. And that's that's one of the great deterrent values. I think is no, no country. You know, they they have an idea what the, what might push the the other country over the edge, their opponent over the edge, uh, but they don't. Uh, but they're not sure. And so it's that hesitation there that, uh, that has a little bit of a deterrent effect. It's interesting. It's, it's not unlike this mutually assured destruction concept for nuclear weapons. So that's probably not a, a, a great answer, but uh, uh, that, that's the best I can do, Maxine. A tough question. I, I think a lot of people are working on that. Uh, Andrew Tisch. Thank you, Admiral. Uh, General, um, I just want to go back to um, uh, leadership and um, uh, particularly uh, what's what's going to happen 45 to 50 days from now when we're going to have a new president or a continuing president. Uh, we're going to have eight or nine Supreme Court justices. We're going to have a new Congress uh, with transitions possibly or not. Um, and uh, who who's going to define who the leadership is at that point? There will, there will be, uh, each side is, um, is teeing themselves up right now to say, I'm going to be the leader because this is how I'm setting up my, my data points for leadership. Uh, do, does... Um, uh, does the military worry at all about 
who the leader that they're going to be responsible to is going to be at that point. I'm sure having been in the military and knowing our pension for planning and thinking about things that might happen, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of interaction with the military about, all right, what if this happens? What if that happens? What do, what do we do? I, I don't think there's anybody putting together you know, major plans, but I know they're thinking about it uh, and they're talking about it. But it, but as it, it, if you as you heard in the quote that I read from General Milley, it's Congress and the courts job to resolve the election. Mm-hmm. You don't want the military involved in resolving the election. So uh, let's see, Bill Galston, why don't you weigh in on uh, Andrew's question and uh, then ask your own. Dennis, you you broke up a little as you were, I think, talking to me directly. So uh, would you comment, please, on, on Andrew's question, th- this idea of uh, can the Congress and the courts provide a clear enough definition that it will not draw in more parts of our government to deciding the election? Uh, or is it going to be more complicated than than that? If you could give your comments on it from your thinking about it, and then go ahead and ask your own question. Sure. Uh, I am moderately confident that our law, our courts, and our duly elected leaders during this transition period, even if they don't continue afterwards, uh, will be equal to the task. I have read, I believe, all of the scenarios uh, that suggest that disaster is in the offing. And I attach a probability significantly greater than zero to those scenarios, uh, but significantly greater than 25%, maybe may significantly less than 25%, maybe less than 10%. Uh, there's been, you know, uh, General Casey referred to the amount of scenario planning for all things that goes on in the military. I have never seen as much civilian scenario planning as I have in the past two months. Uh, I think we are as ready for contingencies as we can be. Uh, that is not a guarantee that everything is going to work out as it usually does. Uh, but my my hunch is that a lot of the procedural questions about the election are in the process of getting straightened out through the judiciary and that some of the disaster scenarios rest on legal propositions uh, that are unlikely to be accepted by the courts regardless of their composition. Uh, So I may have to eat every word that I just uttered in the past five minutes uh, in the next, you know, within two months. But that's what I think right now. Uh, but I am worried, and lots of people are worried, and I think with reason. Uh, General Casey, uh, the highest rank I ever attained was sergeant in the Marines, and so it's with some trepidation that I think I'm going to question something you said. Uh, if I understood you correctly. This takes us all the way back to your remarks about uh, General Kelly and you know, the, you know, being, being pressed to comment on the allegations in the Atlantic article. And what I want to suggest is this, that being a general is one thing. Being a retired general 
is a different thing. Your locus of responsibility, the nature of your responsibility shifts at that point. And if you're retired and then take on one of the most important civilian jobs in the country, you have taken on a new set of responsibilities that don't map neatly onto your old sense of, uh, of responsibilities when you were a serving military officer. And so the analysis that would certainly be correct if General Kelly were a member of the military, uh, I think is more arguable when he no longer is. Uh, and so I wonder, you know, I wonder whether your answer is correct. Having transitioned to a very important job in the civilian world, in the government, uh, didn't he have some sort of responsibility to the country and the constitution that should have overridden decades of military culture with which he was deeply imbued? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And it's one I, I, I've gotten a couple of times. Um, and here's my answer. Um, First of all, for retired generals, particularly generals that have served uh, on the Joint Chiefs of Staff or, or, or as combatant commanders, uh, where they have been in the business of providing military advice uh, to, to secretaries of defense and presidents, um, it, it's, it, it's a very personal choice about whether you speak out or not. Um, you know, I, I believe that because uh, John Kelly uh, was a, a cabinet a cabinet level, uh, a cabinet minister and the chief of staff of the White House, Denny Blair was the director of national intelligence, um, Colin Powell was the secretary of state. I believe if, if they chose, that political position would make it, in my view, okay for them to speak out. I can't speak for John Kelly, uh, but I, I can tell you that, and I've said several times in my comments, being apolitical is deeply ingrained in our military cultures. And when we take the uniform off, we don't, we don't take, we don't take off 40 years of experience. It's, it's, it's ingrained in it. Now, I would just tell you, I, I've been wrestling with this all summer because, you know, in the military, we have a bias for action. And, and when we see our country, in I would call it a, a uncharacteristically negative position, we want to do something. We, we, we want to act. And so I've been getting calls from uh, people who say, hey, you need to speak to out speak publicly. publicly. And as I, and I've thought about it, I mean, long and hard all summer. And, and I finally came to the conclusion that if I did, if I did speak out, it would place me as a political actor. It would make the jobs of my successor much more difficult, difficultly, difficult. And, and I would begin to eat away at that apolitical culture that really is the, is the underpinnings of our whole peace, our whole military establishment. And you know what else I thought, Bill? I thought it probably wouldn't make any difference because who cares what General George Casey, who, who General George Casey wants for president? Who cares? And, and to risk all that for little, I said, 
I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Now, I am I am doing things like uh, I joined uh, Count Every Hero, which is getting uh, servicemen and veterans out to vote uh, and, that, and that kind of stuff. But uh, I, I've decided I'm going to refrain from publicly supporting any particular candidate. George, Norty here, would you allow me to make a quick comment? May I? Sure. Bill's Go on. ahead. Go ahead. Um, I, I'm, I'm a colleague of George Casey and Dennis Blair, and, and I'm proud to have served with both of them. Bill, just, just this point, George made a good case that one one part of the ethic is that you do not want to make the job of your successor harder having served as a chief or a combatant commander or what have you that's one aspect but the more important aspect is that if we're not careful y'all civilian leadership will come to believe that there is such a thing as republican generals in democratic generals. And there's nothing that would be worse for the Republic. Bill, you had, you had a follow-up, I think. I did, if there's time for it. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, you know, General Casey, uh, I heard, I understood, I respected, and I think I agreed with what you said about your own position. <laughs> I think your, your, your logic is unimpunable. But, if you take a job in the cabinet, an appointee of a president, and then agree to serve as his chief of staff, his agent, you have crossed the the you've crossed the line from unpolitical to political. Doesn't doesn't that change? Doesn't that change the case? I I don't disagree, and as I said, um, it's a matter of choice, and and I believe I certainly would have no problem with him speaking out, but. Do not underestimate how deeply ingrained it is in us not to criticize our commander in chief. Mm -hmm. and, and that doesn't go away just because you take the uniform off. I understand, but that raises some very interesting questions about whether retired senior military officers should enter government at all. Okay. Uh, Bill, Bill, I would just add one thing that the particular issue relating to John Kelly had to do with his son. And I think that just uh, puts a whole other, yeah. whole other dimension on it as well. I don't think any of us wants to talk about what a president said at a graveside where his son is buried. That's just too personal and nobody else's goddamn business. Uh, and uh, I, I think that also was an element, in, at least in John's initial response. Now, maybe your arguments when, when things settle down in a more temperate uh, time and so on would, would have some salience. But that, that initial Atlantic article, remember, remember how it got into the Kelly family. And I, I just think that's, that's someplace that he didn't want to go and, and most of us don't want to go. Uh, but anyway, these conversations take place all the time among those of us who have served. And, uh, and I think uh, General Casey gave a pretty balanced view of, uh, you know, these are 6040s. They're not 9020. They're not 9010s. And uh, people come out different ways. Uh, Craig Sieben. Uh General uh, Casey, thank you for your service and also for your comments today. And, and, and also Admiral Blair, my uh, 
grandfather was a rear admiral who had his boat shot out from under him, his battleship in the night battles of Guadalcanal. Ah. Yes, Cushing and was the uh, rear admiral for the, uh, um, so it's, it's just been a, you know, I've, I've grown up in a, in the military experience. And one of the things I wanted to explore was the unique role of those in the military who are veterans who serve in Congress. In the 118th Congress, there were about 116, according to, you know, Google, uh, 96 veterans. Uh, there were 30 Democrats and uh, uh, who were Democrats, uh, uh, 66 were Republicans, 19 in the Senate, 77 in the House. Um, I guess I'd like to explore how can they be uh, more effective given some of the current events like election security and also the role, you know, in the role of the military, but also in the future. Uh, you know, those are, these are, you know, these are not necessarily the leaders, but folks who stepped aside, might have retired mid-career and who are now in Congress and I think have had some powerful voices. And I'm just wondering what you'd like to see more of from them or different from them even in the next 30 days uh, or any, or even in the future. No, that's, that's great. I think, I think the most important thing we need is, is to get more of them in there. And, and if you look at the numbers and these, these are order of magnitude numbers. Um, but since, since the uh, abolition of the draft in 73, Obviously, the numbers of, of members of Congress with veterans' experience has has gone way down. It's gone from the 80s, I think, down to about 17 percent. And and so two years ago, in the in the elections, I made my first political contributions to two veterans uh, in two different states running for Congress because I believed in them. And and so I actually encourage veterans. Uh, to, to go out and, and, and run for Congress, because as I said, they, they have a bias for action. They're, they're team players and, and, they, and they focus on getting the job done uh, rather than working on uh, how, to, how to make people's, make, make people's jobs harder. So um, I, think, I think the first thing we need to do is put more of them in there. Um, now, what can they do? They're already banding together up there in a group. And I forget, I can't remember the name of the group that I've spoken to, but it was a group of, of, of uh, veterans from, not just from the recent wars, but all the way back to Vietnam War, the congressmen. And they get together and they hash out issues and they take a common position and they go forward. And I, I think the more people, more of veterans you get into Congress, the more of that you'll see and, and the better it, the better it will be for all of us. Uh, thanks, thanks, uh, George. I would, I would point out that uh, we have quite a few uh, veterans who are members of our Problem Solvers Caucus in the House, and for all the reasons that uh, you just uh, you just uh, stated, they they want to get something done. They're impatient with a uh, uh, lot of talk that doesn't lead anywhere, and uh, they're, they're really valuable members of the uh, of, of the caucus. Uh, Howard Sherman. Thanks so much, General. Um, you guys in the military are, and women are masterful at playing out scenarios. So in the last 24, 36 hours, if what we heard was true in the media, and if in fact we have a commander in chief who is deeply in debt, and I assume if you believe the reports that that is the kind of thing that leaves him potentially compromised, and I heard somebody last night saying that just even if he it does not prevail in November or January 20th, regardless, it's still 
a big risk to the military given things that he knows if he was truly able to be compromised. And this is all a lot of big ifs, but whether it's nuclear codes or locations of things, and somebody last night, a pundit, was positive it's a complete meltdown scenario. So how do we, how do I sleep at night wondering about that? And, and tell me if that's part of the if-then scenarios you play out. Um, I'm trying to, so, so I think you're asking, um, it, what's the military's role with a compromised president? No, in a, in a, okay, I'm sorry. In a situation where you have a commander-in-chief that is compromised by a foreign power, and as the president, the, the, the peril to the nation is obvious. As an ex-president, the person on the news last night was pointing out, there's still peril given everything that he knows and that perhaps the precarious financial other situation he's in. How do we as a country and you as a military protect against sort of men in black bang them on the head and make them forget everything he's learned over four years? Um, all, all, all hypothetical here, okay? <laughs> totally hypothetical, but I don't think anybody would have dreamed 2020 anyway, two years from now. So we're living where hypothetical can happen. Yeah, so, so my, my take would be that military people that are in a position to uh, observe the president, uh, if, if they were were asked to do something that they felt was out of the out of the ordinary, or, or could jeopardize our security, uh, I'm quite confident that they would speak up to their their powers their their powers that be, and that would come out. I, I can't. Uh, I've not worked in, in, in the closed circle of, of the, you know, the, of the White House, but I, I just can't believe that the military people working there, especially in the environment we're in now, if asked to do something that they thought would compromise the security of the country, wouldn't tell somebody. And so I have difficulty believing, uh, seeing how, how the president might be able to pull something like that off without someone speaking up about it. And I was yeah, Howard, a couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, General Hyten was the commander of the Strategic Command. Those are that's the command that has all of the nuclear weapons. And in testimony, he was asked by a, a congressman, "What if you received a, an order from the president out of the blue to um, to launch nuclear weapons on North Korea, Iran, you name it?" And uh, and General Hyten answered just about as General Casey said, which is that. Uh, the president doesn't have a button that actually launches launches weapons. He gives orders that are sent to people, that are sent to people, that are sent to people. And our job, we're in that chain of command, is to make sure that those orders are legitimate and make sense and, and so on. And he said, so he, he had a nice sense of humor about it. He said, well, if the president sent me that order, uh, I'd say, Mr. President, we need to talk. And I think that's the... I think that is these are not automatons who are in this chain of command between the president and actual military action. Uh, they have the ability to make sure that it is a lawful, thought-through uh, order, and uh, I think I think they're pretty good safeguards against uh, just impetuous orders by presidents who have have different agendas. Uh, Ron Bergamini, th th thank you, and uh, it's an honor to speak to you, sir. 
Hi, Ron. You've made me feel a little bit better about the next 30, 45 days. So thank you for that. My question is as follows. Regardless of who wins the presidency, what do you think their priorities should be in the next couple of years from a military standpoint? Is a shooting war possible still? What do you worry about from that perspective? Thank you. One of the things you learn is you never say never. I think a shooting war with Russia or China is fairly, the chances of that are fairly remote. But for me personally, uh, I, I would think from a security perspective, the next president's priority ought to be to focus on building or uh, making a relationship with China. I believe that's essential, not only for us and for China, but for the world. Agreed. And, and we've got to move this past um, all this competition uh, and put it in, in a place where uh, we can focus on econ economic growth and things like that uh, around the world. Um, I, the, 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 honestly, the thing that keeps me up at night, I mean, that, that I think about that, that is, I, I, I always still worry about a, a weapon of mass destruction, a chemical or biological or radiological weapon in the hands of a terrorist organization. Now, truth in advertising, I've been saying that since 2007, and it hasn't happened. And I couldn't be, I couldn't be happier. But, but it's out there. And, and you know, they're, I'm sure they're still working to get it. And if I'm a terrorist and I'm looking at what's going on across the globe right now with this coronavirus, I'm taking out my books on biowarfare and I'm trying to figure something else out. So I, I worry about that. Okay, well, thanks. Thanks very much, General Casey. I think we're running close to uh, to time here, and we've covered a tremendous uh, number of subjects. So I'm going to uh, wrap it up. Uh, in In summary, just let me let me say that I think that uh, the presentation by General Casey and his answers to questions uh, have been quite reassuring. Uh, we are in uncharted ground here. I mean, this administration, uh, this by this partisan frenzy that we're seeing, it, it goes well beyond uh, anything in any of our recent uh, experiences. And the, peop uh, the people who actually control and run the, the military power of the, the United States are uh, potentially a factor, as we've seen in, in other countries, which have really been uh, Pulled, pulled apart. Uh, and so we do have to worry about it. But I, I personally find it enormously reassuring. People like General Casey are still in that are still in the jobs that uh, he used to he used to have. Uh, we, you've seen General Milley, Milley's reaction, what he said and what he's what he's done. And uh, so I think we can be assured that these are uh, these are men of integrity and who's thinking about these issues and who are not going to do anything that uh, they think would hurt the would hurt the country. So wild times ahead in the next uh, in the next uh, few months. But uh, we've got some, I think, people who are actually commanding the armed forces of the United States who are going to act responsibly. On the um, the other thing that I was thinking as uh, General Casey was talking was that that the that no labels. Uh, is really an organization which, in a different way, comes at this uh, comes at this ethic of doing the right thing for the country, getting beyond 
for getting around uh, political part partisanship and moving on to solve uh, to solve problems. Uh, as we said, several vets are in our in our caucus, but I think the of all of you, 80 people who are on the on the phone call, I think that same dedication to doing for the right doing the right thing for the country is something that uh, military officers like General Casey pledge pledge to in a more formal fashion. But it's the same idea. And although there are differences of opinion, there's respect on all sides. And overwhelmingly, we just need to keep this great country uh, moving to handle a, handle the jobs that it will face in the future and to make sure we leave a better place to our children and grandchildren uh, than even the great place, the great uh, country that we were bequeathed when we when we had the pleasure of being uh, citizens. So let's wrap it up there now. Nancy, Liz, thanks very much. And, um, and thank you, General Casey, very much for for joining us and uh, and sharing this time with us. Appreciate it. So long, everyone. Kenny, thanks, everybody. Nice to be with you. General Casey reminds us that American democracy has always necessitated a separation of military command and civilian control. He also notes that there is a misconception of the military's role in domestic politics and the transition of power between presidents. Although the president has the right to deploy the military in situations of civil unrest, Casey and other military leaders have expressed concerns about the use of this power in recent months. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been the No Labels Podcast. Thank you.